be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined us tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Emily Climbs, Chapter 20, In the Old John House, and Chapter 21, Thicker Than Water. In the last chapter, Emily was finally allowed by Aunt Elizabeth to write fiction again. In these chapters, Emily, Teddy, Perry and Ilsa get caught out in a terrible storm. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 20 In the Old John House When the woman who spanked the king was accepted and published by a New York magazine of some standing, quite a sensation was produced in Blairwater and Shrewsbury, especially when the incredible news was whispered from lip to lip that Emily had actually been paid $40 for it. For the first time, her clan began to take her writing mania with some degree of seriousness, and Aunt Ruth gave up, finally and forever, all slurs over wasted time. The acceptance came at the psychological moment when the sands of Emily's faith were running rather low. All the fall and winter, her stuff had been coming back to her, except from two magazines, whose editors evidently thought that literature was its own reward, and quite independent of degrading monetary considerations. At first, she had always felt dreadful, when a poem or story over which she had agonized came back with one of those icy little rejection slips or a few words of faint praise. The but rejections, Emily called these, and hated them worse than the printed ones. Tears of disappointment would come, but after a time, She got hardened to it and didn't mind so much. 
She only gave the editorial slip the Murray look and said, I will succeed. And never, at any time, had she any real doubt that she would. Down, deep down, something told her that her time would come. So, though she flinched momentarily at each rejection, as from the flick of a whip, she sat down and wrote another story. Still, her inner voice had grown rather faint under so many discouragements. The acceptance of the woman who spanked the king suddenly raised it into a joyous pain of certainty again. The check meant much, but the storming of that magazine much more. She felt that she was surely winning a foothold. Mr. Carpenter chuckled over it and told her it really was absolutely good. The best in this story belongs to Mistress McIntyre, said Emily ruefully. I can't call it mine. The setting is yours, and what you've added harmonizes perfectly with your foundation. And you didn't polish hers up too much. That shows the artist. Weren't you tempted to? Yes, there were so many places I thought I could improve it a good deal. But you didn't try to. That makes it yours, said Mr. Carpenter, and left her to puzzle his meaning out for herself. Emily spent thirty-five of her dollars so sensibly that even Aunt Ruth herself couldn't find fault with her budget. But the remaining five, she bought a set of Parkman. It was a much nicer set than the prize one, which the donor had really picked out of a mail-order list, and Emily felt much prouder of it than if it had been the prize. After all, it was better to earn things for yourself. Emily has those Parkman yet, somewhat faded and frayed now, but dearer to her than all the other volumes in her library. For a few weeks, she was very happy and uplifted. The Murrays were proud of her. Principal Hardy had congratulated her. A local elocutionist of some repute had read her story at a concert in Charlottetown. And, more wonderful of all, a faraway reader in Mexico had written her a letter telling her what a pleasure the woman who spanked the king had given him. Emily read and reread that letter until she knew it off by heart and slept with it under her pillow. No lover's missive 
was ever more tenderly treated. Then the affair of the old John house came up like a thundercloud and darkened all her cerulean sky. There was a concert and a pie social at Derry Pond one Friday night, and Ilsa had been asked to recite. Dr. Burnley took Ilsa and Emily and Perry and Teddy over in his big, double-seated sleigh, and they had a very joyous eight miles drive through the soft snow that was beginning to fall. When the concert was half over, Dr. Burnley was summoned out. There was a sudden and serious illness in Derry Pond household. The doctor went, telling Teddy that he must drive the party home. Dr. Burnley made no bones about it. They might have silly rules about chaperonage in Shrewsbury and Charlottestown, but in Blairwater and Derry Pond they did not obtain. Teddy and Perry were decent boys. Emily was a Murray. Elsa was no fool. The doctor would have summed them up thus tersely if he had thought about it all. When the concert was over, they left for home. It was snowing very thickly now, and the wind was rising rapidly. But the first three miles of the road were through sheltered woods and were not unpleasant. There was a wild, weird beauty in the snow-coated ranks of the trees, standing in the pale light of the moon behind the storm clouds. The sleigh bells laughed at the shriek of the wind far overhead. Teddy managed the doctor's team without difficulty. Once or twice, Emily had a strong suspicion that he was using only one arm to drive them. She wondered if he had noticed that evening that she wore her hair really up for the first time in a soft ebon psyche knot under her crimson hat. Emily thought again that there was something quite delightful about a storm. But when they left the woods, their troubles began. The storm swooped down on them in all its fury. The winter road went through the fields and wound and twisted and doubled in and out and around corners and spruce groves. A road that would break a snake's back, as Perry said. The track was already almost obliterated with the drift, and the horses plunged to their knees. They had not gone a mile before Perry whistled in dismay. We'll never make Blairwater tonight, Ted. We've got to make somewhere, shouted Ted. We can't camp here, and there's no house till we get back to the summer road, past Shaw's Hill. 
duck under the robes, girls. You'd better get back with Ilsa, Emily, and Perry will come here with me. The transfer was effected. Emily no longer thinking storms quite so delightful. Perry and Teddy were both thoroughly alarmed. They knew the horses could not go much farther in that depth of snow. The summer road beyond Shaw's Hill would be blocked with drift, and it was bitterly cold on those high, bleak hills between the valleys of Derry Pond and Blairwater. If we can only get to Malcolm's shores, we'll be all right, muttered Perry. We'll never get that far. Shaw's Hill is filled in by this time to the fence tops, said Teddy. Here's the old John house. Do you suppose we could stay here? Cold as a barn, said Perry. The girls would freeze. We must try to make Malcolm's. When the plunging horses reached the summer road, the boys saw at a glance that Shaw's Hill was a hopeless proposition. All traces of tracks were obliterated by drifts that were over the fence tops. Telephone posts were blown down across the road, and a huge, fallen tree blocked the gap where the field road ran out to it. Nothing to do but go back to the old John house, said Perry. We can't go wandering over the fields in the teeth of this storm, looking for a way through to Malcolm's. We'd get stuck and freeze to death. Teddy turned the horse. The snow was thicker than ever. Every minute the drift deepened. The track was entirely gone, and if the old John house had been very far away, they could never have found it. Fortunately, it was near, and after one last wild flounder through the unbroken drift around it, during which the boys had to get out and scramble along on their own feet, they reached the comparative calm of the little cleared space in the young spruce woods, wherein stood the old John house. The old John house had been old when, forty years before, John Shaw had moved into it with his young bride. It had been a lonely spot even then, far back from the road, and almost surrounded by spruce woods. John Shaw had lived there five years, then his wife died. He had sold the farm to his brother Malcolm and gone west. Malcolm farmed the land and kept the little barn in good repair, but the house had never been occupied since, 
save for a few weeks in winter, when Malcolm's boys camped there while they got out their firewood. It was not even locked. Tramps and burglars were unknown in Derry Pond. Our castaways found easy entrance through the door of the tumble-down porch and drew a breath of relief to find themselves out of the shrieking wind and driving snow. We won't freeze anyhow, said Perry. Ted and I'll have to see if we can get the horses in the barn, and then we'll come back and see if we can't make ourselves comfortable. I've got matches, and I've never been stumped yet. Perry met no great difficulties in making good his boast. His lighted match revealed a couple of half-burned candles in squat tin candlesticks, a cracked and rusted but still quite serviceable old Waterloo stove, three chairs, a bench, a safe, and a table. What's the matter with this? demanded Perry. They'll be awfully worried about us at home. That's all, said Emily, shaking the snow off her wraps. Worry won't kill them in one night, said Perry. We'll get home tomorrow somehow. Meanwhile, this is an adventure, laughed Emily. Let's get all the fun out of it we can. Ilsa said nothing which was very odd in Ilsa. Emily looked at her. She saw that she was very pale, and recalled that she had been unusually quiet ever since they had left the hall. Aren't you feeling all right, Ilsa? She asked anxiously. I'm feeling all wrong, said Ilsa with a ghastly smile. I'm... I'm sick as a dog, she added, with more force than elegance. Oh, Ilsa. Don't hit the ceiling, said Ilsa impatiently. I'm not beginning pneumonia or appendicitis. I'm just plain sick. That pie I had at the hall was too rich, I suppose. It's turned my little tummy upside down. Oh. Lie down on the sofa, urged Emily. Perhaps you'll feel better then. Ilsa, shuddering and abject, cast herself down. A sick stomach is not a romantic ailment or a very deadly one but it certainly takes the ginger out of its victim for the time being. The boys, finding a box full of wood behind the stove, soon had a roaring fire. Perry took one of the candles and explored the little house. In a small room opening off the kitchen, 
was an old-fashioned wooden bedstead with a rope mattress. The other room, it had been Elmira Shaw's parlour in olden days, was half filled out with oat straw. Upstairs, there was nothing but emptiness and dust. But in the little pantry, Perry made some pines. There's a can of pork and beans here, he announced, and a tin box half full of crackers. I see our breakfast. I suppose the shore boys left them here. And what's this? Perry brought out a small bottle, uncorked, and sniffed it solemnly. Whiskey, as I'm a living sinner. Not much, but enough. Here's your medicine, Ilsa. You take it in some hot water, and it'll settle your stomach in a jiffy. I hate the taste of whiskey moaned Ilsa. Father never uses it. He doesn't believe in it. Aunt Tom does, said Perry, as if that settled the matter. It's a sure cure. Try it and see. But there isn't any water, said Ilsa. You'll have to take it straight then. There's only about two tablespoons in the bottle. Try it. It won't kill you if it doesn't cure you. Poor Ilsa was really feeling so abjectly wretched that she would have taken anything, short of poison, if she thought there was any chance of its helping her. She crawled off the sofa sat down on a chair before the fire and swallowed the dose. It was good. Strong whiskey. Malcolm Shaw could have told you that. And I think there was really more than two tablespoons full in the bottle, though Perry always insisted that there wasn't. Elsa sat huddled in her chair for a few minutes longer, and she got up, put her hand uncertainly on Emily's shoulder. Do you feel worse? asked Emily, anxiously. I'm... I'm drunk, said Elsa. Help me back to the sofa, for mercy's sake. My legs are going to double up under me. Who was the Scotsman up at Malvern who said he never got drunk, but the whiskey always settled in his knees? But mine's in the head too. It's spinning round. Perry and Teddy both sprang to help her, and between them, a very wobbly Elsa made safe port on the sofa again. Is there anything we can do? implored Emily. Too much has already been done, said Ilsa, with preternatural solemnity. She shut her eyes 
and not another word would she say in response to any entreaty. Finally, it was deemed best to let her alone. She'll sleep it off, and anyway, I guess it'll settle her stomach, said Perry. Emily could not take it so philosophically. Not until Ilsa's quiet breathing half an hour later proved that she was really asleep could Emily begin to taste the flavour of their adventure. The wind threshed about the old house and rattled the windows as if in a fury over their escape from it. It was very pleasant to sit before the stove and listen to the wild melody of defeated storm. Very pleasant to think about the vanished life of this old, dead house in the years when it had been full of love and laughter. Very pleasant to talk of cabbages and kings with Perry and Teddy in the faint glow of candlelight. Very pleasant to sit in occasional silences, staring into the firelight, which flickered alluringly over Emily's milk-white brow and haunting, shadowy eyes. Once Emily, glancing up suddenly, found Teddy looking at her strangely. For just a moment, their eyes met and locked only a moment. Yet Emily was never really to belong to herself again. She wondered dazedly what had happened. Whence came that wave of unimaginable sweetness that seemed to engulf her, body and spirit? She trembled. She was afraid. It seemed to open such dizzying possibilities of change. The only clear idea that emerged from her confusion of thought was that she wanted to sit with Teddy before a fire like this every night of their lives, and then a fig for the storms. She dared not look at Teddy again, but she thrilled with a delicious sense of his nearness. She was acutely conscious of his tall, boyish strangeness, his glossy black hair, his luminous dark blue eyes. She had always known she liked Teddy better than any other male creature in her ken. But this was something apart from liking altogether. This sense of belonging to him that had come in that significant exchange of glances. All at once, she seemed to know why she had always snubbed any of the high school boys who wanted to be her beau. The delight of the spell that had been suddenly laid on her was so intolerable that she must break it. She sprang up and went over to the window. The little, 
hissing whisper of snow against the blue-white frost crystals on the pane seemed softly to scorn her bewilderment. The three big haystacks, thatched with snow, dimly visible at the corner of the barn, seemed to be shaking their shoulders with laughter over her predicament. The fire in the stove, reflected out in the clearing, seemed like a mocking goblin bonfire under the firs. Beyond it, through the woods, were unfathomable spaces of white storm. For a moment, Emily wished she were out in them. There would be freedom there from this fetter of terrible delight that had so suddenly and inexplicably made her prisoner. Her, who hated bonds. Am I falling in love with Teddy, she thought. I won't. I won't. Perry, quite unconscious of all that had happened in the wink of an eye to Teddy and Emily, yawned and stretched. Guess we'd better hit the hay. The candles are about done. I guess that straw will make a real good bed for us, Ted. Let's carry enough out and pile it on the bedstead in there to make a comfortable roost for the girls. With one of the fur rugs over it, it won't be so bad. We ought to have some high old dreams tonight. Ilsa especially. Wonder if she's sober yet. I've a pocket full of dreams to sell, said Teddy, whimsically, with a new, unaccountable gaiety of voice and manner. What do you lack? What do you lack? A dream of success. A dream of adventure. A dream of the sea. A dream of the woodland. Any kind of dream you want at a reasonable price, including one or two unique little nightmares. What will you give me for a dream? Emily turned around, stared at him for a moment, then forgot thrills and pals and everything else in the wild longing for a Jimmy book. As if his question... What will you give me for a dream had been a magic formula opening some sealed chamber in her brain. She saw unrolling before her a dazzling idea for a story, complete even to the title. A seller of dreams. For the rest of that night, Emily thought of nothing else. The boys went off to their straw couch, and Emily, after deciding to leave Ilsa, who seemed comfortable, on the sofa as long as she slept, lay down on the bed in the small room. But not to sleep. She had never felt less like sleeping. She did not want to sleep. She had forgotten that she had been falling in love with Teddy. She had forgotten everything 
but her wonderful idea. Chapter by chapter, page by page, it unrolled itself before her in the darkness. Her characters lived and laughed and talked and did and enjoyed and suffered. She saw them on the background of the storm. Her cheeks burned, her heart beat. She tingled from head to foot with the keen rapture of creation. A joy that sprang fountain-like from the depths of being and seemed independent of all earthly things. Elsa had got drunk on Malcolm Shaw's forgotten Scotch whiskey, but Emily was intoxicated with immortal wine. Chapter 21 Thicker Than Water Emily did not sleep until nearly morning. The storm had ceased, and the landscape around the old John house had a spectral look in the light of the sinking moon when she finally drifted into slumber, with a delightful sense of accomplishment, for she had finished thinking out her story. Nothing remained now except to jot its outline down in her jimmy book. She would not feel safe until she had them in the black and white. She would not try to write it yet. Oh, not for years. She must wait until time and experience had made of her pen an instrument capable of doing justice to her conception. For it is one thing to pursue an idea through an ecstatic night, and quite another to get it down on paper in a manner that will reproduce a tenth of its original charm and significance. Emily was wakened by Ilsa, who was sitting on the side of her bed, looking rather pale and seedy, but with amber eyes full of unconquerable laughter. Well, I've slept off my debauch, Emily Star and my tummy's all right this morning. Malcolm's whiskey did settle it, though I think the remedy is worse than the disease. I suppose you wondered why I wouldn't talk last night. I thought you were too drunk to talk, said Emily, candidly. Ilsa giggled. I was too drunk not to talk. When I got to that sofa, Emily, my giddiness passed off, and I wanted to talk. Oh golly, but I wanted to talk. And I wanted to say the silliest things, and tell everything I ever knew or thought. I'd just enough sense left to know I mustn't say those things, or I'd make a fool of myself forever and I felt that if I said one word, it would be like taking a cork out of a bottle. Everything would gurgle out. So I just buttoned my mouth up 
and wouldn't say one word. It gives me a chill to think of the things I could have said, and before Perry. You'll never catch your little Elsa going on a spree again. I'm a reformed character from this day forth. What I can't understand, said Emily, is how such a small dose of anything could have turned your head like that. Oh, well, you know Mother was a Mitchell. It's a notorious fact that the Mitchells can't take a teaspoonful of booze without toppling. It's one of their family kinks. Well, rise up, my love, my fair one. The boys are getting a fire on, and Perry says we can dope up a fair meal from the pork and beans and crackers. I'm hungry enough to eat the can. It was while Emily was rummaging in the pantry in search of some salt that she made a great discovery. Far back on the top shelf was a pile of dusty old books, dating back probably to the days of John and Almira Shaw. Old, mildew diaries, almanacs, account books. Emily knocked the pile down, and when she was picking it up, discovered that one of the books was an old scrapbook. A loose leaf had fallen out of it. As Emily replaced it, her eyes fell on the title of a poem pasted on it. She caught it up, her breath coming quickly. A legend of Abergwaite, the poem with which Evelyn had won the prize. Here it was, in this old, yellowed scrapbook of twenty years vintage, word for word, except that Evelyn had cut out two verses to shorten it to the required length. And the two best verses in it, thought Emily contemptuously. How like Evelyn. She has simply no literary judgment. Emily replaced the books on the shelf, but she slipped the loose leaf into her pocket and ate her share of breakfast very absently. By this time, men were on the road breaking out the tracks. Perry and Teddy found a shovel in the barn and soon had a way opened to the road. They got home finally, after a slow but uneventful drive, to find the new moon folks rather anxious as to their fate and mildly horrified to learn that they had had to spend the night in the old John house. You might have caught your deaths of cold, said Elizabeth severely. Well, it was Hobson's choice. It was that, or freeze to death in the drifts, said Emily. 
and nothing more was said about the matter. Since they had got home safe, and nobody had caught cold, what more was there to say? That was the new moon way of looking at it. The Shrewsbury way was somewhat different, but the Shrewsbury way did not become apparent immediately. The whole story was over Shrewsbury by Monday night. Ilsa told it in school and described her drunken orgy with great spirit and vivacity amid shrieks of laughter from her classmates. Emily, who had called for the first time on Evelyn Blake that evening, found Evelyn looking quite pleased over something. Can't you stop Ilsa from telling that story, my dear? What story? Why, about getting drunk last Friday night. The night you and she spent with Teddy Kent and Perry Miller in that old house up at the Derry Pond, said Evelyn smoothly. Emily suddenly flushed. There was something in Evelyn's tone. The innocent fact seemed all at once to take on shades of sinister significance. Was Evelyn being deliberately insolent? I don't know why she shouldn't tell the story, said Emily, coldly. It was a good joke on her. But you know how people will talk, said Evelyn, gently. It's all rather unfortunate. Of course, you couldn't help being caught in the storm, I suppose. But Ilsa will only make matters worse. She is so indiscreet. Haven't you any influence over her, Emily? I didn't come here to discuss that, said Emily, bluntly. I came to show you something I found in the old John house. She held out the leaf of scrapbook. Evelyn looked at it blankly for a moment. Then her face turned a curious mottled purple. She made an involuntary movement, as if to snatch the paper, but Emily quickly drew it back. Their eyes met. In that moment, Emily felt that the score between them was at last even. She waited for Evelyn to speak. After a moment, Evelyn did speak, sullenly. Well, what are you going to do about it? I haven't decided yet, said Emily. Evelyn's long, brown, treacherous eyes swept up to Emily's face with a crafty, seeking expression. I suppose you mean to take it to Dr. Hardy and disgrace me before the school. 
Well, you deserve it, don't you? Said Emily, judicially. I... I wanted to win that prize because father promised me a trip to Vancouver next summer if I won it, muttered Evelyn, suddenly crumpling. I... I was crazy to go. Oh, don't betray me, Emily. Father will be furious. I... I'll give you the Parkman set. I'll do anything. Only don't... Evelyn began to cry. Emily didn't like the sight. I don't want your Parkman set, she said contemptuously. But there is one thing you must do. You will confess to Aunt Ruth that it was you who drew that moustache on my face the day of the English exam, and not Ilsa. Evelyn wiped away her tears and swallowed something. That was only a joke, she sobbed. It was not a joke to lie about it, said Emily, sternly. You're so... so blunt. Evelyn looked for a dry spot on her handkerchief and found one. It was all a joke. I just ran back from the shop to do it. I thought, of course, you'd look in the glass when you got up. I didn't suppose you'd go to class like that, and I didn't know your aunt took it so seriously. Of course, I'll tell her. If you'll... If you'll... Write it out and sign it, said Emily, remorselessly. Evelyn wrote it out and signed it. You'll give me that, she pleaded, with an entreating gesture towards the scrapbook leaf. Oh no, I'll keep this, said Emily. And what assurance have I that you won't tell? Some day, after all, sniffed Evelyn. You have the word of a star, said Emily, loftily. She went out with a smile. She had finally conquered in the long duel. And she held in her hand what would finally clear Ilsa in Aunt Ruth's eyes. Aunt Ruth sniffed a good deal over Evelyn's note and was inclined to ask questions as to how it had been extorted, but not getting much satisfaction out of Emily on this course and knowing that Alan Burnley had been sore at her ever since her banishment of his daughter, she secretly welcomed an excuse to recall it. Very well then. I told you Ilsa could come here when you could prove to my satisfaction that she had not played that trick on you. You have proved it, and I keep my word. I am a just woman, concluded Aunt Ruth, who was, perhaps, 
the most unjust woman on the earth at that time. So far, well, but if Evelyn wanted revenge, she tasted it to the full in the next three weeks, without raising a finger or wagging a tongue to secure it. All Shrewsbury burned with gossip about the night of the storm. Insinuations, distortions, wholesale fabrications. Emily was so snubbed at Janet Thompson's afternoon tea that she went home white with humiliation. Ilsa was furious. I wouldn't mind if I had been rip-roaring drunk and had the fun of it, she vowed with a stamp of her foot. But I wasn't drunk enough to be happy, only drunk enough to be silly. There are moments, Emily, when I feel that I could have a gorgeous time if I were a cat and these old Shrewsbury Danes were mice but let's keep our smiles pinned on. I really don't care a snap for them. This will soon die out. We'll fight. You can't fight insinuations, said Emily, bitterly. Ilsa did not care, but Emily cared horribly. The Murray pride smarted unbearably and it smarted worse and worse as time went on. A sneer at the night of the storm was published in a rag of a paper that was printed in town on the mainland and made up of spicy notes sent to it from all over the Maritimes. Nobody ever confessed to reading it, but almost everyone knew everything that was in it except Aunt Ruth, who wouldn't have handled the sheet with the tongs. No names were mentioned, but everyone knew who was referred to, and the venomous innuendo of the thing was unmistakable. Emily thought she would die of shame, and the worst sting was that it was so vulgar and ugly and had made that beautiful night of laughter and revelation and rapturous creation in the old John house, vulgar and ugly. She had thought it would always be one of her most beautiful memories, and now this. Teddy and Perry saw red and wanted to kill somebody, but whom could they kill? As Emily told them, anything they said or did would only make the matter worse. It was bad enough after the publication of that paragraph. Emily was not invited to Florence Blake's dance the next week. The great social event of the winter. She was left out of Hattie Denoon's skating party. Several of the Shrewsbury matrons did not see her when they met her on the streets. Others set her a thousand miles away by bland 
icy politeness. Some young men around town grew oddly familiar in look and manner. One of them, with whom she was totally unacquainted, spoke to her one evening in the post office. Emily turned and looked at him. Crushed, humiliated as she was, she was still Archibald Murray's granddaughter. The wretched youth was three blocks away from the post office before he came to himself and knew where he was. To this day, he has not forgotten how Emily Birdstar's eyes looked when she was angry. But even the Murray look, while it might demolish a concrete offender, could not scotch scandalous stories. Everybody she felt morbidly believed them. It was reported to her that Miss Percy of the library said she had always distrusted Emily Starr's smile. She had always felt sure it was deliberately provocative and alluring. Emily felt that she, like poor King Henry, would never smile again. People remembered that old Nancy Priest had been a wild thing seventy years ago, and hadn't there been some scandal about Mrs. Dutton herself in her girlhood? What's bred in the bone, you understand? Her mother had eloped, hadn't she? And Ilsa's mother, of course. She'd been killed by falling into the old Lee well. But who knew what she could have done if she hadn't? Then there was that old story of bathing on the Blairwater sand shore. Oh, natural. In short, you didn't see ankles like Emily's on proper girls. They simply didn't have them. Even harmless, unnecessary Andrew had ceased to call on Friday nights. There was a sting in this. Emily thought Andrew a bore and dreaded his Friday nights. She had always meant to send him packing as soon as he gave her an opportunity. But for Andrew to go packing of his own accord had a very different flavour, mark you. Emily clenched her hands when she thought of it. A bitter report came to her ears that Principal Hardy had said she ought to resign from her presidency of the senior class. Emily threw up her head. Resign? Confess defeat and admit guilt? Not she. I could knock that man's block off, said Ilsa. Emily Starr, don't let yourself worry over this. What does it matter what a lot of doddering old donkeys think? I hereby devote them to the infernal gods. They'll have their maws full of something else in a month, and they'll forget this. I'll never forget it, said Emily passionately. 
to my dying day, I'll remember the humiliation of these weeks. And now, Ilsa, Mrs. Tolliver has written asking me to give up my stool at the St. John's Bazaar. Emily Starr, she hasn't. She has. Oh, of course. She cloaks it under an excuse that she'd like a stool for her cousin from New York, who is visiting her. But I understand. And it's Dear Miss Starr. Look you, when it was Dearest Emily a few weeks ago. Everybody in St. John's will know why I've been asked to step out. And she almost went on her knees to Aunt Ruth to let me take the stall. Aunt Ruth didn't want to let me. What will your Aunt Ruth say about this? Oh, that's the worst of it, Ilsa. She'll have to know now. She's never heard a word of this since she's been laid up with sciatica. I've lived in dread of her finding out, for I know it will be hideous when she does. She's getting about now, so of course she'd soon hear it anyway. And I haven't the spirit to stand up to her, Ilsa. Oh, it all seems like a nightmare. They've got such mean, narrow, malicious, beastly little minds in this town, said Ilsa, and was straightway comforted. But Emily could not ease her tortured spirit by a choice assortment of adjectives. Neither could she write out her misery and so rid herself of it. There were no more jottings in her jimmy book, no further entries in her journal, no new stories or poems. The flash never came now, never would come again. There would never again be wonderful little secret raptures of insight and creation which no one could share. Life had grown thin and poor, tarnished and unlovely. There was no beauty in anything, not even in the golden-white March solitudes of New Moon when she went home for the weekend. She had longed to go home, where no one believed ill of her. No one at New Moon had heard anything of what was being whispered in Shrewsbury, but their very ignorance tortured Emily. Soon they would know. They would be hurt and grieved over the fact that a Murray, even an innocent Murray, had become a target for scandal. And who knew how they would regard Ilsa's mishap with Malcolm Scotch? Emily felt it almost a relief to go back to Shrewsbury. She imagined slurs in everything Principal Hardy said. 
covert insults in every remark or look on her schoolmates. Only Evelyn Blake posed as a friend and defender, and this was the most unkindest cut of all. Whether alarm or malice was beyond Evelyn's pose, Emily did not know, but she did know that Evelyn's parade of friendship and loyalty and staunch belief in the face of overwhelming evidence was something that seemed to smirch her more than all the gossip could. Evelyn went about assuring everyone that she wouldn't believe one word against poor dear Emily. Poor dear Emily could have cheerfully watched her drown, or thought she could. Meanwhile, Aunt Ruth, who had been confined to her house for several weeks with sciatica, and had been so crusty with it that neither friends nor enemies had dared to hint anything to her of the gossip concerning her niece, was beginning to take notice. Her sciatica had departed and left her faculties free to concentrate on other things. She recalled that Emily's appetite had been poor for days, and Aunt Ruth suspected that she had not been sleeping. The moment this suspicion occurred to Aunt Ruth, she took action. Secret worries were not to be tolerated in her house. Emily, I want to know what is the matter with you, she demanded one Saturday afternoon when Emily, pale and listless, with purple smudges under her eyes, had eaten next to nothing for dinner. A little colour came into Emily's face. The hour she had dreaded so was upon her. Aunt Ruth must be told all, and Emily felt miserably that she had neither the courage to endure the resultant heckling, nor the spirit to hold her own against Aunt Ruth's wise and wherefores. She knew so well how it would all be. Horror over the John House episode, as if anybody could have helped it. Annoyance over the gossip, as if Emily were responsible for it. Several assurances that she had always expected something like this, and then intolerable weeks of reminders and slurs. Emily felt a sort of mental nausea at the whole prospect. For a minute, she could not speak. What have you been doing? persisted Aunt Ruth. Emily set her teeth. It was unendurable, but it must be endured. The story had to be told. The only thing to do was to get it told as soon as possible. I haven't done anything wrong, Aunt Ruth. I've just done something that has been misunderstood. 
Aunt Ruth sniffed, but she listened without interruption to Emily's story. Emily told it as briefly as possible, feeling as if she were a criminal in the witness box, with Aunt Ruth as judge, jury, and prosecuting attorney all in one. When she had finished, she sat in silence, waiting for some characteristic Aunt Ruthian comment. And what are they making all the fuss about? said Aunt Ruth. Emily didn't know exactly what to say. She stared at Aunt Ruth. They... they're thinking and saying all sorts of horrible things, she faltered. You see, down here in sheltered Shrewsbury, they didn't realise what a storm it was. And then, of course, everyone who repeated the story coloured it a little. We were all drunk by the time it filtered through Shrewsbury. What exasperates me, said Aunt Ruth, is to think you told about it in Shrewsbury at all. Why on earth didn't you keep it all quiet? That would have been sly. Emily's demon suddenly prompted her to say this. Now that the story was out, she felt a rebound of spirit that was almost laughter. Sly, it would have been common sense, snorted Aunt Ruth. But of course, Elsa couldn't hold her tongue. I've often told you, Emily, that a fool friend is ten times more dangerous than an enemy. But what are you killing yourself worrying for? Your conscience is clear. This gossip will soon die out. Principal Hardy says I ought to resign from the presidency of the class, said Emily. Jim Hardy? Why, his father was a hired boy to my grandfather for years, said Aunt Ruth, in tones of ineffable contempt. Does Jim Hardy imagine that my niece would behave improperly? Emily felt herself all at sea. She thought she really must have been dreaming. Was this incredible woman Aunt Ruth? It couldn't be Aunt Ruth. Emily was up against one of the contradictions of human nature. She was learning that you may fight with your kin, disapprove of them, even hate them but that there is a bond between you for all that. Somehow, your very nerves and sinews are twisted with theirs. Blood is always thicker than water. Let an outsider attack, that's all. Aunt Ruth had at least one of the Murray virtues, loyalty to the clan. Don't worry over Jim Hardy, 
said Aunt Ruth. I'll soon settle him. I'll teach people to keep their tongues off the Murrays. But Mrs. Tolliver has asked me to let her cousin take my stall in the bazaar, said Emily. You know what that means. I know that Polly Tolliver is an upstart and a fool, retorted Aunt Ruth. Ever since Nat Tolliver married his stenographer, St. John's Church hasn't been the same. Ten years ago, she was barefooted, running round the back streets of Charlottetown. The cats themselves wouldn't have brought her in. Now she puts on the airs of a queen and tries to run the church. I'll soon clip her claws. She was pretty thankful a few weeks ago to have a Murray in her stall. It was a rise in the world for her. Polly Tolliver, forsooth. What is this world coming to? Aunt Ruth sailed upstairs leaving a dazed Emily looking at vanishing bogies. Aunt Ruth came down again, ready for the warpath. She had taken out her crimps, put on her best bonnet, her best black silk, and her new sealskin coat. Thus arrayed, she skimmed uptown to the Tolliver residence on the hill, she remained there for half an hour, closeted with Mrs. Nat Tolliver. Aunt Ruth was a short, fat little woman, looking very dowdy and old-fashioned in spite of new bonnet and sealskin coat. Mrs. Nat was the last word in fashion and elegance, with her Paris gown, her lorgnette and her beautifully marcelled hair. Marcel's were just coming in then, and Mrs. Nat's was the first in Shrewsbury. But the victory of the encounter did not perch on Mrs. Tolliver's standard. Nobody knows just what was said at that notable interview. Certainly Mrs. Tolliver never told. But when Aunt Ruth left the big house... Mrs. Tolliver was crushing her Paris gown and her Marcel waves among the cushions of her Davenport while she wept tears of rage and humiliation. And Aunt Ruth carried a note in her muff to Mrs. Tolliver's dear Emily, saying that her cousin was not going to take part in the bazaar and would dear Emily be so kind as to take the stool as first planned. Dr. Hardy was next interviewed, and again Aunt Ruth went, saw, conquered. The maid in the Hardy household heard and reported one sentence of the confab, though nobody ever believed that Aunt Ruth really said to stately, spectacled Dr. Hardy, I know you're a fool, Jim Hardy, but for heaven's sake, pretend you're not for five minutes. No, the thing was impossible. Of course, the maid invented it. 
You won't have much more trouble, Emily, said Aunt Ruth on her return home. Polly and Jim have got their craws full. When people see you at the bazaar, they'll soon realize what way the wind blows and trim their sails accordingly. I've a few things to say to some other folks when opportunity offers. Matters have come to a pretty pass if decent boys and girls can't escape freezing to death without being slandered for it. Don't you give this thing another thought, Emily. Remember, you've got a family behind you. Emily went to her glass when Aunt Ruth had gone downstairs. She tilted it at the proper angle and smiled at Emily in the glass. Smiled slowly, provocatively, alluringly. I wonder where I put my jimmy book, thought Emily. I must add a few more touches to my sketch of Aunt Ruth. Chapter 5 